Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I am delighted to introduce our speaker tonight, Ms. Claire Day. Ms. Day is a licensed clinical social worker. She has been on the staff of the Alzheimer's Association since 2001 and is the chief program officer for the Northern California and Northern Nevada chapter. She oversees all clinical operations in these territories. She and her highly trained staff deliver community social services in the form of education, support, advocacy, and case management to people with dementia and their families, as well as to professional caregivers. In addition, Ms. Day oversees all research. So please welcome Ms. Claire Day. All right. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, it is an absolute pleasure for me to be here tonight uh, to talk a little bit about how we're advancing the science um, of Alzheimer's and dementia research. Um, I have a spoiler alert. There's no cure in this presentation. Um, and I say that because I think people are looking for hope. Um, we are looking for hope, too. And I think um, when we hear about news, uh, like yesterday, I don't know if anybody heard about the news yesterday about the Diane 2 study uh, out of uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Um, is anyone familiar with that study? So the Diane 2 stands for the Dominantly Inherited Alzheimer's Network. Uh, uh, and, and there's a trial unit that is looking at research for people in that less than 1% who have such a genetic form of the disease that they're, if their parent, one of their parents has the gene, they will have a 50% chance of developing dementia by the age of 40. Um, and there were two drugs that were being looked at at phase two and three trial that unfortunately have failed to meet their endpoints. And so people hear about these failures and they lose hope. But tonight we're going to talk about how the science is advancing and there is reason to be hopeful about a world without Alzheimer's disease. So uh, just a little bit about the Alzheimer's Association. We are a global organization working to advance care. You heard Patrick, uh, and thank you, Patrick, for inviting me tonight. Um, for those living with dementia uh, and their care partners, uh, but also about advancing research and science across the world. Uh, the Alzheimer's Association is the largest private funder of Alzheimer's research in the world. We are third behind the Chinese and U.S. government. Um, and we believe that it is going to be um, a global united effort that helps us find uh, the end to this disease. So during our time tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about um, Alzheimer's and dementia science. We're going to talk a little bit about early detection and diagnosis and the importance there, as well as latest advances in clinical trials, uh, treatments, and specifically talk about some really great news that came out about some lifestyle interventions, as well as how you might want to get involved in Alzheimer's. But I like to level set a little bit to start with and talk a little bit about um, Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, dementia is really that umbrella term, um, and dementia is that collection of symptoms re related to cognitive decline. And when we're talking about Alzheimer's or related disorders, we're talking about cognitive decline that is considered to be non-reversible, right? It's not, it's a progressive type of disease. Um, but dementia is really the symptoms, right? It's the loss of function of enough severity that it impairs our ability to do things that we all take for granted, like going to the grocery store, uh, making a shopping list, um, knowing the difference between certain objects. 
When there are biological changes in our brain, that's where we see these cognitive uh, and potentially behavioral and psychological symptoms that are what we uh, know as the symptoms of dementia. Alzheimer's disease is a type of dementia, and so that's why we call it that umbrella term, right? And you can see here that there are uh, about 60 to 80 percent of people who are living with Alzheimer's, uh, living with dementia have an Alzheimer's type of dementia, about 10 to 40 percent. Uh, somewhere, uh, look at that vascular dementia. So that's uh, dementia related to having strokes. Um, and then there are other types of dementia, like Lewy bo- dementia with Lewy bodies, frontotemporal dementia, where you start to see um, changes in behavior and speech much earlier than you would see any sort of cognitive or memory disorders. Um, and then we're learning more about the fact that, unfortunately, people can have more than one type of dementia. Um, so people that have Alzheimer's disease might have a stroke later in life and develop a vascular type of dementia. So again, to remember, Alzheimer's dementia is the umbrella term. It's the loss of function. What's happening in the brain, the changes in the brain, that's related to the specific type of that dementia. And I think one of the most important things I like to talk about with this slide is that this type of dementia that we're talking about is not a part of normal aging. And so as we age, it's not normal for us to um, have these types of cognitive um, changes. We're also learning, we've learned so much uh, about this sort of landscape uh, of the continuum of cognitive impairment over the years. And, and so we now talk in these terms of preclinical um, to severe um, cognitive impairment in a much different way. Um, so someone who has preclinical Alzheimer's disease, they're, they're someone with no symptoms, um, but on, uh, on a, and if they were involved potentially in a clinical trial, you may see that their brain has evidence of, uh, the amyloid plaque that builds up in the brain that, uh, is known as one of the sort of causations of Alzheimer's disease. But again, w- we look at this, um, over time, and, and as we start to think about, um, over time, how these um, symptoms are progressing, um, that co- that continuum of cognitive impairment is is um, progressing at the same time, um, and so there are uh, there are symptoms that are considered to be very mild, um, something called mild cognitive impairment. Everyone who eventually has Alzheimer's disease will travel through mild cognitive impairment, but not everybody who has mild cognitive impairment develops Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so you have um, the, the difference there is that someone who has mild cognitive impairment still has, um, they might have some cognitive symptoms, but they're not uh, severe enough to cause those changes in everyday um, ability of, of sort of their activities. Uh, and then as we see this continuum continue, we'll see symptoms that become more severe as time goes on. And so it's important to know that everyone who passes, who has dementia passes through mild cognitive impairment in these different stages, but not everybody um, that has mild cognitive impairment um, develops Alzheimer's disease. It increases your risks. And you're going to hear me talk a lot over the next um, 40 minutes or so about increased risks, because today, that's what we know. What we know about Alzheimer's um, is what's happening in the brain. What we don't know is why. Um, and so it's uh, it allows us to know what puts us at increased risk, but it doesn't allow us to know how we can prevent or stop 
uh, this type of dementia. Um, and so one of the other things that we sort of looked at with this continuum is thinking about, um, you know, how we use the terms Alzheimer's and dementia. In the past, they've sort of been used very um, inter, uh, interrelated, right? You hear people say, oh, well, my mom doesn't have Alzheimer's. She just has dementia, or my mom, you know, not really understanding the difference between what those two words mean. Um, and really, we're really trying to um, change the way we refer to those types of dementia because there are different reasons for why that cognitive, those cognitive changes happen. So I mentioned about um, those hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease being the buildup of amyloid plaque in the brain that cause these sort of neurofibrillary tangles. Um, you'll see this handsome gentleman on the left-hand side of your screen. That's Dr. Alois Alzheimer. He was a physician who, in the early 1900s, uh, had a patient by the name of um, August Dietrich, pictured here on the right, who had cognitive symptoms that we now know are uh, classic signs of Alzheimer's disease. Um, in, in the early 1900s, nobody knew what uh, Alzheimer's was, right? Because he hadn't discovered it yet. Um, he saw symptoms in this woman. She was being treated for psychiatric uh, behaviors, and he saw symptoms in her that just didn't quite add up. Um, things like um, when on his exam asking questions about um, what her first name and her last name was and her not being able to distinguish the difference and using her first name for both answers. Um, answering questions like, uh, where are you from? You know where I've been. That was the, from the notes that he took from that exam. Um, answering the question without answering the question, right? So if anybody's um, ever met someone with Alzheimer's disease or has experienced those symptoms themselves, it's easy to be able to find your way out of some of those conversations by changing the answer of the question that the person asked, right? So we, he saw these symptoms in um, August uh, Dietrich um, in the early 1900s. And after she passed away, he did an autopsy of her, her brain. And that's where, under a microscope, he found this, what we now know to be the classic Alzheimer's pathology, which is uh, a buildup of amyloid plaque around the brain, around the cells in the brain, which essentially causes those, that cell disruption, right? It stops your neurotransmitters from sending uh, and receiving messages the way our brains do that today. Um, and the, there's another uh, component to the brain, this tau protein, uh, that's also being heavily looked at. And tau protein almost creates like a railroad um, through your brain that ca carries messages between cells. Um, in an Alzheimer's brain, that tau, that tau railroad track is, is bent. It's disrupted. What happens to the train tracks when, it, when the train is bent? It derails, Right. And so the same thing is happening with this tau protein. It, it's unable to then continue to carry the, the protein where it needs to go in the brain. Um, and so this is uh, the work of Dr. Alzheimer uh, really has got us to where we, what we know today about those hallmarks of the disease. Of course, this was the early 1900s, 1906. But for many of us, we know, <coughs> excuse me, that um, in, even in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and mm, probably even some of the early 90s, we weren't really talking about Alzheimer's disease the way we do now. Um, and so we've worked really hard at the Alzheimer's Association to ensure that uh, we're dispelling some of those myths about what Alzheimer's and dementia is and isn't, um, and really uh, 
becoming an, an opportunity to not only educate, but also bring great information and accurate information um, to people about the disease. So I mentioned a few minutes ago that we were going to talk a lot about what impacts our risk. Well, there's a few things on this list that we can't change. Um, the first one, of course, is age, right? Every day, we're all getting a little bit older, whether we like it or not. Um, we can't change our genetics, right? We can't change up the biological makeup of who we are. We can't change our race or ethnicity. But then there's a lot of other things on that list that we can change. Um, some environmental or lifestyle factors, cardiovascular health, physical activity, diet, sleep, social and cognitive engagement, as well as our education. And the reason those are up on that list is because there's evidence to show that of those modifiable risk factors, there's evidence to show that there can be some improvement in decreasing your risk of developing Alzheimer's or dementia based on those things. And we're going to talk about a few of those studies as we go through. I do want to spend just a minute talking about some of the therapeutic um, interventions that are available for Alzheimer's disease, because we're going to talk a little bit about some of the science and some of the trials. It's important for you to know what is out um, and, and approved by the federal or the um, Food and Drug Administration as an approved therapeutic for Alzheimer's. So there are um, two main types of medications um, one is what I call my 50-cent word of the evening, and that's your cholinesterase inhibitors. Okay? So these three medications, uh, the brand names you might be familiar with, Aricept, Exelon, and Razadine, are all what they're called, are all a, an, an acetylcholine uh, uh, or a cholinesterase inhibitor that is attacking the acetylcholine in the brain. They're all designed to do the same thing. There's one very small difference. Aricept does have some evidence to show that it can be effective in all stages of the disease, but primarily those medications were de developed for mild to moderate-staged Alzheimer's disease. The reason that's important to know is because when we talk about why diagnosis is so important, the therapeutic interventions are a big part of that. The second medication, the Nemenda, or which is a glutamate moderator, is really only designed for the moderate to severe stages of Alzheimer's disease. So in theory, you would transition from one medication to the other or add in the Nemenda as the moderate stage um, uh, sort of develops. But it's important to know then um, when you were accurately and, and timely di when you received a timely diagnosis so that you can maximize the benefit from these medications. And then, <laughs> excuse me, I'm so sorry. Just a few years ago, um, they actually combined the, uh, the Aricept and the Nemenda to make a one time a day, um, or one dose a day, uh, medication that does combine those therapies. So they can be used as a dual therapeutic. They can also be used as independent, um, medications. But I think when we talk about hope, um, the last one of these medications that come to market was Nemenda. Does anyone know what year that was? 2002-3. Close. Yeah, very close. So 20 years ago, right? So it came out just after I started at the Alzheimer's Association. Um, and here we are today that that's the last target that's gone to market. And some ask, well, why is that? Well, 
there's lots of different potential reasons. Certainly, we'll talk about Alzheimer's research funding, which plays a big role in the movement of some of these drugs. But I think the reality is we're talking about the brain, and this is not an easy target to identify treatments for. Um, I'm pretty sure if I asked for volunteers tonight to come with me to a lab where we could cut open your skull and take a look at your brain, I'm not going to have any takers, right? If I was a betting woman. It's a tough, um, it's a tough disease to try and look at. Most of the, um, most of the pieces of the brain that we need to look at can only be looked at um, from autopsy. However, I think through the advancement of things like PET scans and other imaging, we are getting closer and closer to being able to see some of that live that's really making a change in the way some of these therapeutic targets go. Now, the encouraging news is that uh, just earlier or late last year, Biogen um, re- uh, announced that they are going to send um, the first trial to uh, the first drug to uh, be approved for FDA uh approval um, early in 2020. Um, and so that's a rigorous process that they have to go through. And, and this was a drug that had um, really mixed uh, reviews as far as there was some exciting early news. And then when they looked at the data, they didn't think that it meant met some endpoints. But a lot of that had to do with dosing um, and with the um, earliest intervention And so one of the things that we're learning about some of these treatments that are in clinical trials today is that how important it is that they're being introduced to someone in the earliest possible intervention um, of the stage of of Alzheimer's disease, which is why when we talked about that continuum of um, the continuum of the disease of the cognitive decline, making sure that we're understanding where someone is in that point of really having cognitive difficulties um, or where we see someone who might be what we consider to be pre-symptomatic but with evidence of Alzheimer's on the brain through a scan and why that's important. And there's a trial uh, that's just concluding that we're going to see some results from, I would say, in 2020 or 2021 called the A4 trial. Has anyone heard of this trial? So the A4 stands for, this is where I test my short-term memory, the um, anti-amyloid asymptomatic Alzheimer's study. See, four A's. And what this study is doing is looking at some of these therapeutic interventions that have failed with people who have um, cognitive symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And they're taking people who are 65 and older, who present cognitively normal, so they take the tests, like counting backwards by a hun- from 100 by 7s. Anyone can do that? I can only get to 86. Charge you all to start practicing. They'll, and on those tests, they are marked as being cognitively normal. And then they get a PET scan. And in their brain, they have that evidence of amyloid plaque. So these are people that are willing to say, I am going to get a, a, a scan to find out if I have the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease, even though I'm not showing any symptoms. And they're giving this intervention. Uh, this drug, solanuzumab, which is one of the drugs that um, it was being used on the Diane Chu families as well. And so that's important to know because there are things that are happening at all different stages of the disease that whether they meet their endpoints or not, we're learning something from them that is going to help the next researcher and help the next potential therapeutic intervention. So I would be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about why this is also important. 
Five million Americans, over five million Americans are living with Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S. That's taken by the CDC's death certificate report. We often know that people who have Alzheimer's disease die from complications related to Alzheimer's that don't ever get recorded on the death certificate. But even without that, it's the sixth leading cause of death. And I think the cost to care for this disease is so high that in, um, in this year or in 2019, dementia cost the nation $290 billion. And in just 25 years, uh, 20 something more years, uh, 30 more years, 30, right? Okay. Um, we're talking about that rising as high as 1.1 million. And the reason that statistic isn't trillion. Thank you. The reason that statistic is so important is because we have to do something to change the trajectory of this disease. And part of why we've taken so long, I mentioned that part of it is the complexity of the brain, but money is a factor. Um, and so if we were to take this um, bar chart out the other way, um, beyond uh, earlier than 2011, that $448 million would have been a pretty stagnant. This is money that's received by the, to the National Institute on Health specifically for dementia research. And so you can see um, we have had a really, really nice upward swing on um, Alzheimer's research being dedicated specifically um, from the NIH. Um, and that all started back in 2011 with something called the National Alzheimer's Project Act, which was for the first time creating a nationwide plan to address Alzheimer's disease. These plans have now been taken to states, um, and every state is addressing Alzheimer's in a different way. California is really leading the way. Um, there's been a couple of groundbreaking um, research uh, boosts to California researchers. Um, Governor Newsom recently, um, uh, recently started a task force to address Alzheimer's disease in California and, um, and brain health. And uh, I hope she's not going to mind me saying this, but we actually have a member of that task force that was appointed by Governor Newsom here in our audience today. So we thank you for your um, work and leadership. And recently, the, um, the California has also dedicated money specifically to centers, uh, to county uh, public health departments to increase community outreach and education. And so we are leading the way in California, but, but this is also helping us to um, show where this, uh, how this money needs to go um, to change the way uh, we're able to access good um, data, to, to get good research going. Um, and so in a very, very difficult political climate, we've still managed to get Alzheimer's funding. And I think that just goes to show how important this is to everybody, regardless of what side of the aisle you sit on. This is a, a disease that's affecting everybody. And so I want to talk a little bit about um, our global research efforts, just to kind of give you um, a, an idea of what's happening. This is just funding from the Alzheimer's Association, 500 pro projects um, uh, over all of these different countries um, throughout the world. Um, we are in a race to end this disease, um, and it's going to take science from across the, the globe to help us think about that, especially when you think about lifestyle interventions and how our lifestyle interventions may look different than other parts of the world. Um, in 27 countries, sorry. 
So one of the things that we've seen is these sort of priority areas really start to boost up that's looking beyond just how are we going to cure the disease, which is really all we used to talk about, to thinking about discovery science, early detection, how we can get better at detecting this disease and treating it earlier, what those treatments look like, and then the ultimate, which is, of course, um, prevention of the disease. And, I, you know, I like to think that it really is an exciting time in research. And, and you'll see a couple of examples here in the next couple of minutes of why, um, why that is. So there's one thing that's become a real game changer over the last several um, years, and that's what we're learning about biomarkers. So biomarkers or biological markers are something from us that can help tell us whether or not we have disease. So if you think about it, have you ever had strep throat? Anyone ever had strep throat? What do they do? They swab the back of your throat, right? And they send a culture in, and that tells um, a physician whether or not you have um, that strep throat or, or some sort of an infection. Now we're starting to see the um, evidence behind some of these biomarkers specifically for Alzheimer's disease research. So we talked a little bit about um, amyloid PET imaging, which is that looking for that amyloid plaque in the brain. Now we've advanced that science with the PET imaging, or PET stands for positron emissions tomography. It's sort of like um, the next best uh, diagnostic tool to, to not only be able to think about um, the amyloid in the brain, but also looking at that tau protein. Remember, we talked about how it, it may not be just the amyloid plaque or just the tau protein, but probably both together. You can see here um, the how that um, the severity in the brain changes um, uh, shows up differently in those in those images. But now we're advancing our science to look beyond just the imaging to things like blood or cerebral spinal fluid. Um, I think the, the most exciting news that came out of an, uh, an, an international conference that's held every year called the Alzheimer's Association International Conference on Dementia Research, or AAIC, last year was this news that we could be looking at a blood test to diagnose Alzheimer's disease in the next five to seven years, something that you could go into your primary care physician, get a blood test, and know immediately whether or not you have um, those biological markers to see, to tell immediately if you have the disease. Because we joke about those cognitive tests, but that's the reality. They're a subjective battery of tests, and other than um, um, an MRI to rule out a brain tumor or rule out a stroke or something else that could be causing the, the cognitive loss, the rest of the diagnostic process today is pretty much subjective. It's a physical and hist a history and physical. It's cognitive testing. It's interviews of family members. But there's no one single test. This could change that game. They're also looking at saliva biofluid as well as uh, retinal images. Um, not quite as far along in some of the um, process, um, but certainly getting there as, as far as ways that these sorts of biological markers could really change the way we um, detect and diagnose Alzheimer's disease. And so that's helping us. We talked about um, that continuum of, of uh, care, but it's also helping us to look at really sort of modernizing the diagnosis and being able to think about rather than just that history and cognition um, testing, really look at something that could help put people into um, a scientific diagnostics of, um, of this type of a disease um, that would include that sort of 
preclinical or pre-symptomatic, so the biomarker is there, right? So that means the, the amyloid plaque or the tau protein might be there, but there's no symptoms. And that's the opportune time for people who are living with dementia or living with the Alzheimer's biomarkers or the Alzheimer's hallmarks to be able to make lifestyle decisions, make changes in their care and their their support to empower themselves throughout um, the rest of the progression of this disease. Um, we've learned over the last um, 10 years that those symptoms, those those um, markers in the brain are there usually about 20 years prior to ever exhibiting a symptom. So that's where that A4 trial is so vitally important because that could be a, a real game changer when it comes to how we intervene uh, with people that aren't experiencing cognitive loss but have the hallmarks of the disease. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. So I want to talk a little bit here in the last few minutes that we have about what effective treatment looks like. And really, I think um, we believe at the Alzheimer's Association that, that treatment for Alzheimer's disease and dementia is not going to be just one pill. It's going to be either a cocktail of, of tra- treatments that are, that are rooted in um, lifestyle interventions in addition to medicine. Um, currently, there is about um, 108 um, trials in phase one. So we have uh, three phases of clinical trials. Phase one is um, a lot of lab work, um, no humans. Phase two is where they start to use small um, subjects of humans uh, to test often dosing. Um, this is where they'll experiment with different levels of dosing um, of, a, of a medication or intervention. And then phase three is where they take those trials into large you know, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 participants um, to see if it has efficacy among those um, big, large-scale um, uh, types of um, participants, right? So we have 108 trials that are currently, this was as of January, um, in phase one, 181 that are in phase two, and 55 in phase three. Um, and I think um, just sort of really important to know that this involves all kinds of things. It's not just drugs. It's also caregiver interventions, um, cognitive training, computer, computerized devices, things that could not only improve diagnostic, improve the life of the person with the disease, but also support caregivers and, and uh, provide better care and support for caregivers as well. Um, and we had some exciting things happening um, in in the last several um, months that are really helping us to accelerate some of this. And, and um, really, I, I wanted to uh, take a moment just to talk a little bit about why um, the part the cloud um, pipeline is so important. And, and that's because it's really diversifying the pipeline in a different way. Um, and so this is looking at new targets, um, new therapies. And so... Um, we are fortunate enough to have a, a true advocate and champion here in Northern California by the name of Mikey Hogue, um, who founded Part the Cloud. Um, she lost her mother to the disease, and she is committed to um, really 
finding new investigations, new therapies, things that might not be funded by the NIH because they might not be quite the right sure thing. You know, in order for the NIH to look at that small pot of money that they have, they have a lot of confidence. And yet the next best thing may be innovative and different. And so this is really allowing for us to expand um, some of those therapeutics beyond just what we see as traditional Alzheimer's or dementia research. Um, and we were fortunate enough this year that through a partnership with Bill Gates, um, he has added another um, Ten, uh, $10 million um, to this part, the cloud fund, um, which is uh, has the potential to add $30 million of new investigation um, research um, through the part, the cloud um, uh, initiative. So it really, it's about... Um, how we're going to get there faster. Um, and it's, and it's innovation like this that's really helping us to do it. There's also lots of medicines that are looking at the behavioral and psychological symptoms. And I, I think it's you know, really important that we, um, recognize the fact that while if we found a cure tomorrow, there's still 5.7 million Americans that probably won't benefit from that that cure. So what are we going to do to ensure that they have the best possible quality of life possible? And really thinking about how we can look at trials focusing on therapeutics and interventions specifically for things like agitation, for insomnia, for um, those psychosis episodes like hallucinations and delusions, as well as um, other caregiver-based um, initiatives as well. And so it's important to know that we're not just looking at caregiver interventions, but some of these medications that will improve the quality of life for people living with dementia. A lot of the medications that are on the market now that treat these types of symptoms are what we call, uh, they're, they're not appropriate, right? They've been deemed to be unsafe for people with dementia. So we've got to find a better way because this is a, the, rea the potential um, to make sure that people are living um, a high-level quality life, um, regardless of how dementia changes their brain. I want to talk a little bit um, over uh, the next couple of slides about lifestyle interventions. And if there's one thing you walk away with today, I want you to remember this slide. So what we learned last year from something called the Sprint Mind Study is that there's a direct correlation between high blood pressure and an increased risk of developing dementia or mild cognitive impairment. This was a study that took place with over 9,000 participants. They were all over the age of uh, 50. They had a higher risk of dementia, did not have dementia, but a higher risk of develop developing dementia. And they were managed through their blood pressure at two intervention arms. A standard, which at the time was considered to be 140 systolic, um, versus an intensive treatment, which at that time was looked to be um, at 120 systolic. Um, and what they found from the study was a dramatic reduction of those small vessel, um, of the small vessel disease on an MRI. Um, through a higher, um, uh, a, a higher intensity um, of ma monitoring the systolic level of your blood pressure. So in, in terms of outcomes, what, what that meant was for those people that blood pressure was monitored at 120 or less, they had a 19% reduced risk of developing mild cognitive impairment, a 17% reduced risk of uh, dementia. So if you think of like vascular dementia, 
And when combined, it was an overall 15% um, combined risk for mild cognitive impairment and dementia. Two years into the trial, they stopped the 140 arm because they found that it was unethical to keep people at that higher level, maintain those people at that higher level when they were seeing such great outcomes. And so this is important because every one of us today should be going back to our primary care physician tomorrow and having our blood pressure checked. And if our blood pressure is high, we need to get that treated because here is a lifestyle intervention that everybody could be taking today um, that will have an absolute reduction of risk of developing mild cognitive impairment or dementia. Now, they couldn't correlate a, a direct relationship to Alzheimer's disease. And part of what they think that was was because the study didn't look out far enough. Alzheimer's is a, a slower progression of a disease than you would see with other types of dementia. So they're going to continue this study with what they're calling SprintMind 2.0. Um, and they're going to actually re-enroll those people uh, that were in the original trial uh, and continue to monitor them over time to see if there could be a correlation uh, between a reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease as well. And so it's studies like this that are helping us to understand that great thing that we've always thought for years, which is what's good for your heart is good for your brain. 25% of our blood pump from every heartbeat goes to our brain. So logic tells us, right? What's good for your heart is good for your brain. But now there's actually evidence behind it other than, you know, crazy people like me just telling you what's good for your heart is good for your brain. So things like exercise, eating right, um, social and cognitive stimulation, all the fun stuff, right? All the fun stuff we want to do every day is extremely important to reducing our risks of developing dementia. We've seen that through something called the the fingers trial, the finger study. The finger study was a, a trial done in Finland called through the Finland geriatric study where it looked at people over the, from the ages of 60 to 77 who were, um, a little bit more sedentary. Um, and they provided two arms of intervention, what they called a self-guided or a structured intervention. There's a little bit of a difference between people that live in Finland and people that live in the United States. Um, Finland is a very homogeneous country. About 80% of people that live in Finland are Finnish. They have a very um, different diet than we do in other countries. And so we want to take this trial out and see what it can do in other countries across the world. And so in the United States, we are going with uh, a study called U.S. Pointer. This is the study to protect brain health throughout life, through lifestyle interventions to reduce risk. So what this study will do, which um, is happening at five sites across the country, um, if you see in the little map of the United States, one of them looks awfully close to here, does it not? Um, That's happening at UC Davis in Sacramento is the second site for U.S. Pointer. And we're going to do exactly the same thing. We're going to take those two arms. We're going to provide self-guided or structured intervention with these lifestyles. So we either tell you what they are and send you on your way or we tell you what they are and we meet with you weekly and, and keep you up to date to see if we can uh, look at that reduced risk and potentially even prevent cognitive decline from some of these lifestyle interventions. Um, this is really um, a landmark study. Um, Dr. Laura Baker, who's the principal investigator out of Wake Forest, who works alongside Dr. Rachel Whitmer, who's based in UC Davis here as the co-principal investigator, says that one of the things that she's excited about about this trial is because we're a country that 
drives around a parking lot for 15 minutes to find a, a sooner spot, right? A quicker spot, a, a closer spot to the, um, to the entry. And so lifestyle interventions are the hard thing to do in life. And so it's really important um, that we see how this can play a role um, in cognitive health overall, because imagine what that could do to the way we talk about physical exercise and nutrition, um, cognitive and health coaching at a much younger age than 60 to 79. We are expanding it to 79. And one thing that we're doing that's a little bit different than what they did in Finland is in order to participate in this trial, you also have to have a first-degree family history. We talked a little bit about uh, risk factors. and We talked um, uh, we talked about genetics. Um, it is a smaller percentage. Less than 5% of people living with Alzheimer's have the familial type of the disease. Um, but we also know that if you have a family member with the disease, it does put you at an increased risk. So while it's not the, um, un- the major reason, we can't find that true genetic li- link right now. And you can have um, one copy of that APOE4 gene potentially from one of your parents. You could even have two copies and you're going to increase your risk of developing the disease. You can also have zero copies of that gene and still have Alzheimer's disease. So it's not everything, right? It's some, it's part of it, but it's not all of it. And so this lifestyle intervention is a huge um, step in us identifying um, how those lifestyle modifiable risk factors can play a role in the decreased, uh, the, the, uh, ch- decreasing our chances of developing dementia. We're also taking this across the world. Um, I feel like, you know, we went with finger, right? The finger study in Finland, we went with pointer. I feel like the Canadians kind of took the easy way out with thumb. But, you know, that's just me. So, but you can see the the landscape of different countries because you can think about what India, what a lifestyle intervention change for uh, someone in India who's an older adult um, exercising, going to the gym. Do you think that happens as a regular thing in India? That's one of the things that our researcher there said. Women over the age of 60 wouldn't exercise. They wouldn't go to a gym. It's not in their culture to do that. And when you think about also what looks at healthy foods for us versus healthy foods for other countries, we have to make this work for every country and find those ways um, to make this um, a global effort. And so we're really excited to be um, leading the Worldwide Fingers trial um, and and thinking about how that could really change the way we think about um, aging in this country as well. So um, really quickly as we we wrap up this, why this is so important um, and why um, delaying even something like a lifestyle intervention that could delay the onset is because of the outcome that that could potentially have. If we develop a treatment by 2025 that delays the onset by just five years, 5.7 million people less would develop Alzheimer's disease by 2050. So you can see that even a five-year delay of get of the cognitive symptoms has a huge impact on those overall numbers. And so that's why whether it's through lifestyle intervention or through a therapeutic intervention, um, delaying early detection and delaying those symptoms as long as we can has actual outcomes um, that will improve um, improve numbers for people living um, with Alzheimer's disease. 
Um, I would always encourage people, if you're interested in learning more about um, clinical trials, that you sign up for a study, um, get involved, uh, learn what's going on through Trial Match, which is a, a clinical trial uh, link uh, that can connect you to all of those trials that I was telling you about. Um, and really just, I want to thank everybody for, um, for your time today. I think we, I went a minute over, uh, but I think we do have some time here for questions at the end. So, uh, thank you so much for, for allowing me to be with you tonight. That was wonderful. Claire. Oh, thank that you. Was great. Well, uh, Oh, you have 15 minutes. If anybody has any questions for her, when we run out of time, if you'd still like to chat with her, she said she'll be available in the foyer. So, so thank you very much. That was a wonderful thank presentation. You. Thank you. And thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. So I should mention while they're taking that, I, I didn't mention the science app, but if you're interested in science, uh, Alzheimer's science, this is a great app that has all the latest things. You can find it in the app store um, under Alzheimer's Association Science Hub app. And I think you have a question? Yes, I have a question. Thank you. Um, wouldn't the Alzheimer's Association encourage people strongly to um, engage in lifestyle interventions if, A, you've had a, a close family member with the disease, either a parent or a sibling, or, B, you know you have the APOE4 gene? Why wouldn't you say, yeah. go out now, tonight, and start doing this, this, and this if you have the gene and or parent, sibling, and just hit people over the head with that until more research definitively yes. says Mediterranean diet, exercise, sleep apnea, treatment, whatever, definitely lowers your risk. But right. Yeah, no, and I think it's a, it's a good point, and, and uh, I probably didn't, it was, I think I was rushing to get through those slides at the end, and I didn't hit my, uh, the, I think lifestyle interventions, no matter um, whether you have the disease or not, um, have a positive impact. We can't definitively prove that, to your point, right? We can't say, if you do this, it will delay or it will prevent you from developing. But it, it, it will help you in some way. What we don't know exactly yet is what that measure of help looks like. Um, but I, I would say that the Alzheimer's Association absolutely strongly recommends that in addition to the blood pressure, that we look at some of these lifestyle interventions, that you should be um, doing the things to keep yourself cognitively, socially stimulated, as well as um, looking at things like the MIND diet, which is a, a modification of uh, Mediterranean and... Uh, What's the other one? It's a, it's a modified Mediterranean diet that looks at things like dark green leafy vegetables. There is science behind all of those things individually, and I didn't touch on that, so thank you for bringing that up. All of those things individually, diet, exercise, the cognitive and social stimulation, have shown that they can uh, decrease your risks. We haven't looked at them all together, and that's why Pointer is so unique. Uh, but individually, we know they all work. Yeah. So thank you very much. Um, so last time we were here, there was a there was a talk on technology and humanity, which was pretty fascinating. And it actually uh, talked about technology and how it's sometimes it can be used to help Alzheimer's patients. Um, but then at the same time, there was a whole uh, there was a whole uh, conversation around how it actually is keeping us from using our brains. Being socially connected. They said they asked us to to. Uh, to say if uh, how, how many phone numbers can you remember um, over ten, 
And everybody went, yeah. And then we started to test it. And <laughs> most people just rely on their phones for their phone numbers yeah. now. So I guess the, the question is, how is that being um, worked into all these? Is, is, it, is there, I'm sure there's benefits and uh, and drawbacks, but what's your take on that? Yeah. So I think it's exactly what you've just described. I think technology is helping, certainly is helping caregivers, um, whether it's through um, apps that help to keep schedules uh, or help to keep families connected on information. There's tools that can be used. There are um, there are some uh, cognitive um, uh, tools. You know the 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 um, sort of programs on the computers that are designed specifically. Some have better outcomes than others. Um, I don't think I can say which one we're using in Pointer, but that there's a reason we're using that one. But I think your point is also valid in that, um, you know, when you think about what technology does to social connections and how important, when we talk about healthy living for your brain and body, we talk about the diet and the exercise and, and all of that, but we, we talk about social stimulation and how important human social connections are. We see people who have Alzheimer's disease who can flourish in social situations um, when they've been previously isolated and can actually improve their overall well-being. So I think it's about balance, right? And this is a very un, unsponsored, but just Claire's version of the answer to that question, which is really it's it's about balancing between using the tools that are beneficial and helpful in keeping us going and also balancing it with downtime screens because there's all kinds of study that's being done on how bad screens are um, for us just from uh, from a vision, from everything, from headaches and all of those things. So I think it's a little bit about balance. Um, but I, I would also refer back to um, there was a did anyone see the movie Still Alice? So if you remember in the movie Still Alice, the character used her iPhone as, as a person living with Alzheimer's disease to test herself. Like those are great tools for people who have uh, early cognitive um, deficits that need tools and tips and reminders. And I would, I would probably send out to most of you, how many of you remember to come here tonight with the address and everything without it being either written down or in your calendar? Like we, we, we do, they are useful tools, but I think it has to be a balance of how we isolate ourselves as well. China has four times our population, mm-hmm. and as her population ages, she's going to have many more people that will have this kind of a problem. Uh, is China sharing with us, and for that matter, are we sharing with China? Uh, yes, I would say yes, we are. Um, China is um, China is not one hundred percent committed to U.S. Pointer, um, but they are um, they are close. They're not in a phase of it, but they are in the planning stages. Um, and that was a huge win um, when you think about learning from a large population. Um, but we're learning. We are funding studies in China, and there, are, there is a, a lot of co-sharing going on. One of the things that I think is really unique to Alzheimer's that, and dementia that doesn't happen with other diseases is these scientists share data. Um, there's a, there's a, a ethical... Uh, way for them to share data, um, you know, especially the basic science data that starts a trial so they can, they have a baseline to go from. That doesn't happen with other diseases and that's happening worldwide through something called uh, GAIN. Thank you. And thank you very much. Um, I heard a speaker 
here a while back on Dr. Bresden, Bresden, mm-hmm. and he said that um, if you have a f- family member that had Alzheimer's, you absolutely should get tested. There's a lot of tests to get, but I believe he said they were pretty expensive, or I don't know if you just go to your doctor and say, I'd like this mm-hmm. test. The other thing is, so if you... And he also says that he has um, lots of research working with people that have reversed. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think a lot of people don't want to find out if they right. have it since there's no cure. Yep. And so your thoughts and all of that. Yeah. So there is the potential for you to get genetic testing. Um, the, the, the recommendation for genetic testing would be if you're in one of these families, like the Diane families that has the, the dominantly inherited form of the disease, there are trials and, and ways for you to get tested, um, and counseling, genetic counseling around what that implication means. Um, if you don't have a genetic counselor um, and you don't have a way to really understand what that genetic testing looks like, the, then I don't recommend that people get tested because um, you can have the APOE4 gene and never develop the disease. You cannot have it and develop the disease. So you have to really understand. Um, family history is is important, but it is one only one part of it. And so if you're going to look at getting genetic testing, um, we would recommend doing that at a, at a center where you can actually receive the counseling to go along with it and really understand what it is you want to get out of the genetic testing. Um, the, um, Dr. Bredesen's protocol um, study was small, to less than 10 people. So keep that in mind when you're looking at those types of interventions that um, have, uh, he's done some larger studies, but not that have shown the type of efficacy. So it's really important that when, remember when I talked about those different phases of clinical trials, um, you know, you saw with SprintMind 9,000 people, that's how you really learn whether or not an intervention is going to work on everybody or whether it's just other, other contributing factors. Well, I'm not sure if you like my question, but it's it's not on the, uh, well, maybe it's studies. Um, I do have a friend who is my age, so young-ish, mm-hmm. and she's been diagnosed with early onset, advanced early onset. And I was just wondering, her husband is working very hard to help her. Is there any case where one can maintain a certain status quo at a certain level for 20 years, maybe? Or... Or is it always degenerative that you've seen? Yeah. So right now, I think the, the you know, you might not like the answer. Um, you said I wouldn't like the question, but you might not like my answer, which is that it is a degenerative disease. It is a progressive disease over time. Um, we're learning more and more about younger onset Alzheimer's disease. When we talk younger onset, we're talking about people that are diagnosed in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Typical age of onset would be 65 or older. Um not that we think that that's old, but that's sort of, you know, age is the biggest risk factor, right? One in nine over the age of 65, one in three over the age of 85. We do tend to see a faster progression with people who are younger. We don't know why, whether it's because they're healthier in other ways. And so they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of explanation scientifically as to why that happens. Um, we also tend to see that a lot of people that have the younger onset have more of those front, the frontal lobe, um, deficits. Um, the medications may work at keeping her where she is for a longer period of time, but I think with the medications, it's important to remember that just like, you know, if you have a, a high blood pressure and you're on a medication, some medications work in some people and they don't. So, you know, I think, 
what those medications are designed to do is keep you where you are. Um, so people will say, well, they're, they're not improving. They're not going to make you improve. Um, so it's just, it's hard to tell. And I think, um, you know, we have a saying that says, if you've met one person with Alzheimer's, you've met one person with Alzheimer's. Everybody's brains are so different. All of the other contributing medical factors play a part in the way we progress and the way our brains age with or without the dementia. Um, I can give you some resources after if you want to connect to your friend's husband. So we have time for one more question. Is that okay? Sure. Well, well thanks very much. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the comparative uh, situation between U.S. and other countries. Mm-hmm. One element in the U.S. obviously is social fabric. It's sort of a inherited, I guess, of the social economic system that really leave more isolation than other 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 parts of the world. Uh, is there been any comparative analysis that actually this phenomenon is more prevalent in the U.S. than other countries? Yeah, and that's then a... second question okay. is that we keep uh, having conferences here about retirement, and every time that we attend the conference, the discussion say delay and delay and delay retirement <laughs> because of the possible risk of Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, th- I think if I understood your first question, you're asking about is is prevalence higher here in the United States than in other countries? Do so- socioeconomic factors play a role in that? Uh, worldwide, the numbers are fairly consistent. We see some countries that have a little bit higher prevalence than others. Um, and and again, socioeconomic status. Um, we talked about things like education and um, and race and culture. They they play risk factor. Um, and so it, it's, I don't know that we have the level of detail that we would need to really be able to sort of click down and say, is it related to education, uh, versus race versus risk, uh, age versus, uh, genetics, right? But we are doing, there's more and more research that's happening in there. Um, and I think your second question Oh, retirement, right, which is so far away from all of our brains, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's the whole use it or lose it, right? I think that's the thing that people want to um, keep their minds going as long as possible. I would say if you can afford to retire and can still stay active, then retire, right? I think it's about keeping active. It's about learning new things, learning new skills. Um, doing those things, whether you have Alzheimer's disease or not, learn, you know, taking those things that are challenging your brain, the more we can keep those synapses sparking, the better off we're going to be. Okay. Uh, so, that, I think we're I out of time. Um, that was a wonderful presentation. Thank you very much. And Ms. Um, Day has said that if anybody has any other questions, she's glad to chat with you out in the foyer. Thank you.